so good to see you all this morning. I invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 is our text where we'll find our text this morning. Uh, over the past several weeks, we've really had the blessing of being able to closely examine a large portion of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. Uh, we've seen how God has blessed believers in Christ according to the riches of His grace. Uh, we've seen how God has reconciled sinners to Himself through the blood of Christ. Uh, we've seen how God has reconciled man to His fellow man uh, through the cross of Christ. We've seen the mystery and the ministry with which God has blessed Paul. And we've seen the contents of Paul's prayers on the behalf of the readers of his letter, that they would have the strength to know the unknowable love of Christ. And lastly, last week we were blessed and challenged with a call to unity, to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in the church. And we considered the virtues that lead to unity, humility and gentleness, patience, forbearance and love. Uh, we saw the foundation of our unity is, is the unity that is eternal in the Trinity. My hope is that uh, during this past week uh, that the Holy Spirit had called to mind uh, the text that we studied last week and maybe even part of the message and that he used it for, for you in a way that you grew in these uh, virtues. So that was my case. I, I, I was blessed with time to just reflect, to, to meditate upon those virtues and, and hopefully have grown in uh, at least some of them, if not all of them. I would encourage you to be on the lookout for ways that we can employ that teaching from, from last week, ways in which we can maintain the unity of our church. Uh, we're not meant to be hearers only of our messages. We're meant to be doers of the message as well. Uh, passivity, again, does not lead to unity. Uh, we must be eager to maintain the unity that is ours in Christ. Well, this morning, God's graciously given us another opportunity to open up his word. Our focus is going to be on Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses 7 through 16, uh, but I'd like to start at the beginning of the chapter so we can see our text in its context. So I'm going to read from Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 16. I'll follow along as I read aloud. I therefore, a prisoner for, for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who has also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and 
craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the authoritative and inerrant word of God. May God bless the reading of his word. Charles Spurgeon said of the church that it is the dearest place on earth. And he said that even without visiting NBC, which is remarkable. But he went on to say that nothing in the world is dearer to God's heart than his church. Therefore, being his, let us also belong to it, that by prayers, our gifts, and our labors, we may support and strengthen it. If those who are Christ's refrained, even for a generation, from numbering themselves with his people, there would be no visible church, no ordinances maintained, and I fear very little preaching of the gospel. In this quote, Spurgeon is really affirming the truth of of the text that's before us this morning. The unity of the body is a beautiful thing, but it must be maintained. If even one generation would refrain from being the church, there would be disastrous consequences. The church must be the church, and in order for the church to be the church, we all must contribute according to the grace that's been given to us. Let's start by looking at our passage this morning, starting in verse 7, where we'll see our first point uh, on our sermon outlines, which is you have been given gifts. You have been given gifts. We see that right there in verse 7, and it works all the way really through verse 11, but let's start in verse 7, where it says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Verse 7 serves as as a sharp contrast. Paul was really emphasizing the oneness and and the unity in those first six verses. But here, in this portion of his letter, Paul reveals to his readers how their individual contributions uh, will serve to to really bring about that unity, to maintain the unity in the church. Unity does not mean sameness. It it doesn't mean conformity. Uh, We have all been given diverse gifts and roles to play which bless the church and really makes us function as a church, um, as a united church. Paul starts by saying that each one of us has been given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Paul is not referring to saving grace here. He's referring to a, a ministering grace or a serving grace. In his letter to the Romans, uh, Paul wrote something very similar. Romans twelve six says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Each one of us has been given a gift, uh, and that gift is given to us not based upon anything that we've done, not based upon any sort of uh, potential that we've shown, but it's given to us by God's grace and by his grace alone. And we find the same truth in, in the other passages that discuss spiritual gifts. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 to 6 says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all for everyone. Then again, back to Romans 12, 4 to 6, it says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. 
These texts give us a better understanding of, of what a healthy, uh, united church looks like. Yes, we all share the common experience of being united in Christ uh, by the work of the Holy Spirit, but without the exercise of diverse gifts, you know, we would not be able to function the way that God has intended for us to function. If the whole body were an eye, uh, where would be the sense of hearing? Uh, if the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, uh, where would the body be? As it is, we are many members, yet one body. This is the unity that is ours in Christ. Now let's take a look at verses uh, 8 to 10 in Ephesians 4 here. It says, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And here Paul's quoting from Psalm 68, uh, verse 18. And Psalm 68 is a, it's a really amazing psalm. It's really just it's a song of triumph. Um, and we think that it's probably written on the occasion where the, the Ark of the Covenant was being brought into the city of Jerusalem. And the writer of the psalm pictures God as, as a victorious king who has conquered all of his enemies. And, and now he is ascending up into his throne where he is to receive gifts from all men. And when Paul is quoting from Psalm 68 uh, and referring to Christ, he, he's putting Christ in that role of the victorious king. Uh, Jesus Christ on the cross, he triumphed over sin over death, over hell, over Satan, and being the benevolent king of kings that he is, when he, when he ascended up to his throne, now he has given gifts to all men, to all of his subjects. Then in verses 9 to 10, we have this just parenthetical statement that Paul goes on, and he, and he borrows the imagery from Psalm 68, and he applies that directly to Christ in, in his incarnation and in his ascension. The fact that he ascended implies that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. Uh, Paul's emphasizing the humility that Jesus Christ displayed by emptying himself uh, when he took on the form of a human being. And saying that he descended is another way of explaining uh, really the humiliation that Christ went through in the incarnation. Um, he set aside his glory and, and coming to earth uh, in the form of one of his created beings. He didn't count equality with, thing, with God a thing to be grasped, but he set aside the, the free exercise of his divine attributes to the, and submitted those to the will of the Father, and he came in the form of, of man. He, he came down, 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 all the way into the incarnation. And he plumbed the depths by going even further uh, in his death, where he, he who knew no sin became sin for us. Uh, Jesus descended all the way to the grave, but he did not stay there. Amen? Now, up from the grave he arose, and, and he, he arose far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. He ascended above all things. He burst forth in exaltation and in glorification, and he fills the universe now as the triumphant king of kings, and he lavishes gifts upon all of his subjects, upon the children of God. Jesus gives gifts to his church, and, and by the power of his spirit, he enables them to use those gifts uh, to build one another up, to, to mature the church. 
for his glory. The gifts that we have been given have been given to us by the benevolent king of kings, the conquering king, and it's according to the measure of his grace. Those gifts were given with the expectation that they would be used. As, as this, uh, at this point, you might be asking, well, what are those gifts? Uh, and that's a great question, uh, but it's really difficult to answer as well. Um, there, there are at least five passages in Scripture that include uh, at least partial lists of spiritual gifts that have been given, uh, and that includes the passage that we're looking at this morning. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 contains two separate lists of gifts. Uh, Romans 12 contains a short list, and, and 1 Peter 4 contains an even shorter list. Um, some of those gifts were apostolic or, or sign gifts that were given and which ended uh, with the completion of the canon of Scripture, uh, while other gifts are, are still even given today. Comparing those gifts is, is beyond the scope of our study this morning, but it's important to note that the lists that are given in Scripture are, are simply broad categories of spiritual gifts. They're not, they're not comprehensive lists of every spiritual gift that's been given by God to men. But here in Ephesians 4, uh, Paul's focus is not on spiritual gifts per se, but on spiritually gifted men uh, who are gifts to the church. Look at verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. If you've been with us these past few weeks, uh, you might remember that Paul explained how the, how the apostles and the prophets were, were the foundational gifts to the church. Uh, back in Ephesians 2.20, he wrote of the new household of God that was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Then in Ephesians 3.5, he mentioned the mystery of Christ, which had now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The apostles, of course, were, were those handful of men who were sent out by Christ. They'd been chosen by Christ. They were eyewitnesses of his resurrection, and then they were sent out into the world to share the gospel message. They were sent out ones. Uh, that's what apostle means. They, they took the good news of Christ, and, and they went out from Jerusalem into Judea, into Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now, the prophets were those who preached in association with the apostles, both the apostles and the prophets were given to the early church uh, to get her started and to get her established on firm ground. They were used mightily by God to communicate the truth of the good news of Christ, and they were given special powers, they were given special authority to do so, um, but now that their role has been assumed by, by the completed text of the New Testament, the gift of the apostles and the prophets uh, with their unique power and authority did not extend beyond the apostolic age, beyond, beyond that first century. Now, there are some who would mistakenly teach that there's a, an apostolic succession of, of this gift, of these gifts, um, but that is completely contra contradictory to, to the truth of Scripture. Uh, the ap apostolic age ended when the apostles died, and it didn't go on to any next generations because we have their teaching complete in the New Testament. But there is a group of gifted men uh, that God gives to every generation, and that is the evangelists and pastor teachers. Evangelists are, are those who are specially gifted in, in going out uh, and sharing the gospel message. Uh, Kent Hughes refers to these as the, as the obstetricians of the church. Uh, uh, they specialize in bringing about new births, right? This is what they do. Uh, I sh we should make note of the fact that all of us are called to evangelize. We're all called to share the good news of Christ. 
Um, there, there is a lost and dying world out there, and, and God has purposed us to share the good news of Christ with, with those that are, are lost and dying without hope in the world. But uh, there is this special group of men who are especially gifted to, to go out and do that, and that seems to be what Paul had in mind here, the, these evangelists. And then there are the pastors and teachers, or the shepherd teachers. The Greek grammar there suggests that this is one office. A pastor, of course, refers to those who have pastoral oversight uh, over others. According to Peter, uh, the pastor is to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Uh, when Paul met with the Ephesian pastors for the last time, he told them, pay, attention, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Pastors are to feed the sheep. Uh, we saw that in, in Jesus' threefold charge to Peter. Uh, they're also to protect the sheep from false teachers, uh, which Paul would refer to as, as fierce wolves. The term teacher uh, is fairly self-explanatory, but the importance of the teacher cannot be overstated. Uh, sound biblical teaching was vital to the early church. Sound biblical teaching is vital uh, in the 21st century as well. If anything, it's no less critical today than it was back then. If we think about Jesus' great commission at the end of Matthew's gospel, it helps us understand the importance of, of the gift of teaching. Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I uh, have commanded you teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Uh, those that are brought to faith in Christ uh, are discipled through teaching. Uh, although there are big differences in the gifts that Paul lists in Romans 12 and, uh, and 1 Corinthians 12, with those that are listed here in Ephesians 4, it's important to note that at least in this list, uh, teaching is really at the heart of each of these gifts. The apostles and prophets provided the initial teaching, uh, which is pres preserved for us by God's grace in the New Testament. And then evangelists proclaim the central truth of this teaching, the gospel. Uh, and they go out and, and teach people about the forgiveness of sin in Jesus Christ. And lastly, the pastor teachers, they lead, uh, they guide, they instruct and care for the flock through a full communication of scriptural truth. They're not shrinking back from, from sharing the whole counsel of God's word. This doesn't mean that there aren't some gifts that, that don't involve teaching, but it does mean that the teaching gifts are critical for growth and, and maturation of the church. John Stott said that nothing is more necessary for the building up of God's church in every age than an ample supply of God-gifted teachers. It is teaching which builds up the church. It's teachers who are most needed. Well, thus far, we've seen that every believer, uh, each one of us, have been given a gift according to the grace of Christ. God has given spiritual gifts to every believer, and he has given gifts, or gifted men as gifts to establish, uh, to lead, and to teach the church. Now, let's look at verses 12 to 16, where we see how God, God's gifts accomplish God's purpose. God's gifts accomplish God's purpose. Now, if you were to ask a dozen people what the purpose is of the church, 
Uh, you'd probably come up with at least a dozen, maybe more, different answers for that question. Uh, some might say that the church exists to, to send out missionaries in, into all the earth and, and to preach the good news of Christ to all of creation. Others might say that the church is to serve more of a, a social services type of role in our community, uh, to feed the hungry, to give drink to those who thirst, uh, to clothe the naked, uh, to visit those who are in prison. Still others might say that the, the church really is just to be a place of refuge. It's a, it's a place where we can come after a hard week and, and we can have our wounds treated and, and we can get our batteries recharged before getting back out uh, into the battle. Now, all of these are, are things that are true of the church. These are things that happen in the church and through the church. But according to Paul, God uses the church primarily to bring about maturity in his people. Again, Paul uses the imagery of a body, uh, Christ's body in particular, to communicate this truth. And the, his concern is that, is that the body is being built up. And take a look again at verses 11 through 13. It says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Then in verse 14, Paul, Paul explains what the body would look like if it wasn't maturing, if it remained in, in spiritual immaturity or infancy. Rather than growing to mature manhood, the body would be, would be childlike. Uh, we would be vulnerable to every latest fad, uh, every new interpretation of doctrine. Paul says that growth should happen so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And then back into verse 15 and 16, Paul gets to the, back to the picture of the mature body. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. God has given gifts to men for a purpose. God's purpose for his church is, is to use their gifts to bring about maturity in the church, in one another. So what does spiritual maturity look like? Uh, let's look quickly at four aspects that Paul sets forth in this passage might want to write these down. I'm not saying that there's going to be a quiz at the end, but I'm also not saying that there isn't going to be a quiz at the end. Let's write these down. Let's keep note of these. First, Paul says that spiritual maturity is defined by unity. Spiritual maturity is defined by unity. And that's been Paul's emphasis in this portion of his letter. Uh, he's all about unity. Walking in a manner worthy of our calling is walking in unity that is ours in Christ, and eagerly maintaining that unity with humility, with gentleness, with patience, with forbearance and love. But here in verse 13, Paul writes about a unity that is to be attained and not maintained. It's a unity that is the expression of a church who has grown in maturity. They've grown up, and they have this unity. It's a unity that's the goal of every church, and, and all of its members should be striving together toward this unity. This unity has two parts. It's, it's the unity of the faith, and it's the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. The faith there consists of, of the theological truth of 
Christianity. This is the gospel. It's the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The mature church will attain a unity in our knowledge of biblical truth. We will have a common understanding of the word of truth, of the gospel, of our salvation. The mature church will be able to answer the question, what must I do to be saved? The mature church will be able to answer the question, well, what is the gospel? Uh, then the knowledge of the Son of God is, is the same knowledge that Paul refers to in Philippians 3 uh, when he says that he has suffered the loss of all things, that I may know him and, and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul's not talking about just a, a mere head knowledge here. Uh, he's talking about an experiential knowledge that travels down from the head, down, down into the depths of the heart, and then it works out itself in love, in, in self-sacrificial service to God. And Paul says that the mature church should attain this twofold unity, uh, growing in both a head knowledge and a heart knowledge of biblical truth and, and living out that truth in our day-to-day -day lives. Secondly, Paul says that uh, the goal of spiritual maturity is Christ-likeness. Uh, I think this is what Paul means when he says that we are to attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So the mature church will not only be growing in our knowledge of Christ, but we will also be growing in Christ-likeness. We will be getting more and more like Christ as we seek to abide in him and, and he abides in us. This is true on the individual level. It's also true on the corporate level. Our church grows in maturity as each individual member becomes more like Jesus. Um, but it also grows uh, corporately as we, as we go about our business in the world uh, and demonstrate Christ-likeness in, in our own unique situations. As children and, and youth go out and demonstrate Christ-likeness at school, our church will grow. Uh, as parents display a, a growing Christ-likeness toward their children, and then our church grows and maturity. As professionals go into their respective workspaces and demonstrate Christ-likeness there, our church matures corporately. As kapuna meet together to study the Word of God and, and, and really uh, demonstrate Christ-likeness as they minister to one another's needs, our church becomes more and more mature in Christ. And this should be the goal for each and every one of us. Well, the third goal of maturity for the church is truth. Truth is absolutely vital. Uh, without truth, there is no maturity. We see that in verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And Paul's contrast there is with the spiritually immature, uh, those that he calls children. Uh, they're tossed to and fro by the waves. They're, they're, they're blown each and every way by the, by the different winds. We heard that in, in the passage that J.D. read for us this morning, that we're not to be children uh, in our thinking. When it comes to evil, we're, we're to be inf infants. Uh, that's good. But in our thinking, we're called to be mature. Our, our thinking must be shaped by the truth of God's word and not by the things that, that tickle our ears or, or entertain us. The mature church gathers together to hear the word of God taught and hopefully preached. Uh, and, and they do so knowing that uh, there are plenty of other places to go where they can hear soft messages that might 
boost their ego or, or, or help along their self-esteem, but they don't gather at the church to hear that. This is why Paul teach, uh, ties in the teaching gifts with the spiritual maturity of the church. He lists the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherd teachers because this is how the church will grow from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. And finally, we see that love is the last expression of maturity. We just saw the truth, that truth is important, but we also must speak the truth in love if we're to be a mature church. The English translation there, speaking the truth in love, doesn't really capture Paul's emphasis on the love part. In fact, if you allow me, let's just geek out really, really quickly on the grammar. Um, where, where that translation part where it says, uh, the word translated that truth, there's actually, that's actually a participle uh, in the Greek. And so the, the right translation would, would probably be truthing in love. Rather than speaking the truth in love, it should be truthing in love. Uh, this means that we're both to be speaking in and living out love and truth. Um, a mature church is, is a loving church. And this love is to be on display for all to see. Uh, John, or Jesus uh, said in John 13, 35, that by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, love is a display of maturity in the church. God has given gifts to each one of us, and, and when we are all using our gifts, uh, when each part is working properly, the whole body will grow up uh, so that it builds itself up in love. This is the reason why God has gifted the church with evangelists and shepherd teachers. Uh, this is why he has given each one of us a spiritual gift. To be a, a genuine believer in Christ who, is, who has removed himself from the fellowship of the church is, is really an affront to this spiritual gift that's been given. It, it's as if you're saying, Christ is saying, here's this gift for you, and you're saying, no, no, I'm good. I'm, I'm going to be on my own on this one. You can keep your gift. That's really what is being said there. The genuine believer who attends a church, um, even if they do so faithfully, but does not commit to that church, who does not serve at that church, is a part of the church that simply is not working properly. The church has been built by God in such a manner that every part is to work together to make the whole body grow. We cannot grow in unity, uh, in Christ-likeness, in truth, and in love the way that we're supposed to grow if every part is not working properly. And God has a purpose for the gifts that he's given. Uh, and, and not to use those gifts is really just being in opposition to God's plan for, for you and also for his church. As we take a step back and, and think about this important text, I think it's probably important to think about the implications of this truth uh, here in the 20th or 21st century. Many scholars consider that this is the central passage for Paul's letter to the Ephesians, that this is the, the key passage in all the letter. Um, as we think about our, our own day and age, it's especially um, with the advances of technology that we've seen even recently, as we think about the recent restrictions that have been placed upon churches gathering um, because of COVID-19, it it's important for us to have a biblical understanding of what the church is and what the church isn't. And in this passage, Paul provides that for the church. We have an understanding of what the church is and what the church isn't. Let's first consider what the church is not. Uh, the church is not a spectator sport. 
A church is not a spectator sport. I think that the larger a church gets, the easier it is to develop a mentality where you can simply kind of sneak in and even sneak out and not even have any sort of interaction with anybody at the church. Uh, you, you gather together by the hundreds, maybe by the thousands, and you simply spectate and watch just a few highly skilled professionals do the work that they're doing, and then you don't have to do any of the work. Uh, this has been a growing trend, I think, in America in many churches. Certainly not the case here at NBC. I always say, um, be quick to say that the vast majority of our members uh, serve very faithfully and very frequently as well. But in America, there is this growing trend where church is simply becoming a spectator sport. There's this consumer mentality about church where people simply attend church to get something from the church. And if they're happy, if they actually got something good, something that tickled their ears, then maybe on their way out, they might even drop a couple of bucks in the, in the offering slot, right? If, if there was a really, really good message. Uh, but that Paul's saying that each one of us are to be involved in the work of ministry. Uh, God has given evangelists and shepherd teachers to the church, not for their entertainment, uh, but for the very purpose of equipping the saints to do the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Christ has given each one of us a gift, and we're to use that gift for his glory and for the growth of the church. The focus is not on numeric growth. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about maturity, maturity in spiritual matters. Paul does not leave any room for, for Christian spectators. There's no such thing in the New Testament. Secondly, the, the church is not a cult of personality. The church is not a cult of personality. The church is not defined by the man who is preaching from the pulpit. Uh, we are all the body of Christ. We are all in this together. The pastor is not called to shepherd his flock. He's called to shepherd the flock of God. He is the under-shepherd, and Christ is the head. He is the great shepherd. He is the good shepherd. We are called all to be a part of this church, working together to make the body grow so that builds itself up in love. Our culture is, is absolutely obsessed with celebrity. Uh, famous people feel like people should listen to them simply because they're famous. Uh, athletes who make millions upon millions of dollars feel like they've been given a platform to speak uh, because they feel like they're role models for those who want to be like them. Uh, actors and actresses are, who are paid millions of dollars to recite lines that people tell them to recite, they feel like we should listen to them when they tell us about things like shopping and, and health care and, and the environment. Uh, unfortunately, this obsession with celebrity has uh, found its way into the church as well. Uh, gifted shepherd teachers, uh, they develop a, a following through social media, uh, through podcasts, through recorded sermons um, online, and now many people are tempted to to step away from their local church um, and to simply watch one of these sermons online. Uh, they feel like watching a sermon online of, of a well-known pastor would be a, a suitable substitute. We absolutely have to fight that temptation. Watching a sermon online is not church. It cannot be church. And I imagine that Satan would be really pleased to deceive the church into thinking that simply staying at home and watching a sermon online would be uh, good enough for the church, that that would be sufficient, that that would be okay, that you could still be the church by simply staying at home in, in the comfort of your pajamas in your, in your living room and watching a sermon. 
that I think that would be Satan's uh, skill and his tact that he would take and in, in to divide and conquer. He uses that against marriages. He uses it against the family, and he can certainly use it against the church as well. And I say this in knowing that we do have some homebound saints who have really been blessed by the technology that we've been able to use to, to live stream our broadcast, uh, our, our worship services. Um, and they've been blessed Sunday after Sunday, even though they can't gather with us physically, they've been able to follow along with the, teach, the teaching. But even so, I think it would be wrong for any of us to think that watching a sermon online is equivalent to gathering as the body of Christ. We should be devoted to coming together and, and listening to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship uh, and to the prayers. Christians should make every effort to faithfully gather together with other believers uh, to encourage one another, to admonish one another, to spur on one another to love and to good works. And that leads us into the fact that the church is not simply a transfer of data. Uh, the church is not just merely a transfer of data. If it were, this would be a really inefficient way of doing it. Uh, technology has gotten to so there's much more efficient ways than a person standing up in front of a church body for 45 minutes one day a week uh, to get data out to the church body. Uh, if, if, if efficiency was, was our goal, then the church, the pastor could simply just email out the, church man, or the sermon manuscript um, or make it available for the download of, of, at a time that is uh, most convenient for you. Um, but as it is, the church gathers together to be equipped for uh, church ministry. Uh, we use the gifts that have been graciously given to us by Christ, uh, and, for, and that is for, for the building up of the body. Now, part of our ministry might take place uh, during the church gathering, and part of the ministry might take place uh, in the week that follows. Whatever the case, we cannot reduce church to simply just a, a mere transfer of data from, from a pastor to a congregation. So we've noticed what the church is not, and hopefully that helps us to better understand what the church truly is. Uh, that we are the church. We are the church. Uh, we are the collection of sinners who have been saved by grace in Jesus Christ. We're the assembly of the called out ones. Uh, we have heard the good news that we, who once were dead in our sins and, and, and our trespasses and sins, have now been made alive together with Christ. Uh, we've responded to our encounter with the gospel by repenting and by believing. Each one of us has been uniquely given, uh, given gifts by Christ for the work of ministry. So we gather together as a body whose head is Christ, and we use our gifts to grow the body in maturity until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Brothers and sisters, we are the church. We must be the church. If we're going to walk in a worthy manner, if we're going to maintain the spirit and the bond of peace, if we're going to maintain the unity in the spirit and the bond of peace, if we're going to mature to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, we must have an all-hands-on-deck effort. I don't know what the army equivalent is to that, all hands on deck, but it means everybody's got to be playing a part in this. Let's commit to doing the work of ministry. Let's commit to, to building ourselves up in love. Let's commit to maturing in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son, and all of this for God's glory. Let's pray. Father God, we, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you that we don't have to stumble around in the dark trying to figure out how we are to live our lives as followers of Christ. By your grace, you have inspired the Apostle Paul to write the letter, this letter, so that the church would know how to be the church. May your Holy Spirit impart this knowledge to our hearts. And may we grow in maturity as we seek to use the gifts you've given to us. May we grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. For those who have not come to saving faith in Jesus, I ask that you would regenerate their hearts and breathe new life into them. May they respond to the good news of Jesus in repentance and belief. All of this for your name's sake and for your glory. Save the lost today, Lord. If there was anything that I said that was an error, uh, that I was not in keeping with the truth of your gospel, Lord, I just ask that you would strike it from our memories, uh, correct it with your truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.